Well, thank you, Larry. It's good to see you folks this morning. Good to be here. I was pleasantly surprised when Pastor Brent called and asked if I could do this today. And, uh, but on the way up, my voice was bad. I could hardly talk. That didn't bother my wife. But um, hopefully I'll be able to get through this. Maybe short. It's good to be here. I look out. I see a lot of familiar faces. And I see some a lot of strange. No, that's not right. Unfamiliar faces. And uh, that's, that's good. That's a good sign. God is, is working. Well, let's buy for just a brief word of prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of worshiping you this morning. We thank you that we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who passed through the heavens and is seated at your right hand to make intercession for us. Father, may your spirit be our teacher this morning. Minister to us as only you can, now I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at the passage that uh, Larry read. And as I was thinking about this morning, I was thinking that whenever a group like this comes together, it's safe to say that someone has come bearing a burden of some kind. You know, it may be a physical condition. It uh, may be you've heard that dreaded word, that C word, cancer. It may be a financial problem that due to a loss of a job or something else. It may be grief over the loss of a loved one. It may be a decision you're facing and you just don't know which way to turn. Or it may be a decision, it may be a besetting sin over which you can't seem to find the victory. Something for which you, something you need to confess and for which you need, need, need to repent. Maybe a temptation that's confronting you, for which you need strength to defeat it. It might be something that popped up on your computer unexpectedly, and you just can't get it out of your mind. Well, regardless of what you may be dealing with this morning, I want to draw our attention to this wonderful promise that we have in Scripture. And I think it's a very, very precious promise, one that we often ignore or, or take for granted. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. So if you have your Bible open, you might want to open that uh, to that. And um, otherwise, many of the Scriptures will be on the, on the screen. I won't read the text. Larry's already read that for us. One thing we ought to think about when we come to a portion of Scripture like this is, who wrote it? Where'd it come from? And uh, we don't know for sure who wrote the uh, the book of Hebrews. Many have speculated about who it may have been. Charles Spurgeon attributed it to Paul, and I find myself not one to argue with, with Spurgeon. And even on um, the program Jeopardy a few weeks ago, they said that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. I thought, well, you'll have to be a little careful here. But, um, you know, it's obvious that the writer was... Uh, one who had a close relationship with the people he was writing to. In um, Hebrews 13, 18 to 19, it says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act earnestly to, be, uh, do, to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. I had a little trouble there. I 
got it all messed up when I typed this out. I wrote it by hand, and I can't read my writing. Anyway, then we might ask about the date, too. When, when was this, work, this book written, or this letter? Uh, we believe it was in the first century, probably before 70 A.D., since the Jewish sacrificial system seems to have still been in, in place. And uh, which tells us that the temple had not yet been destroyed, which happened in A.D. 70. Hebrews 7.27 says, uh, speaking of our great high priest, the writer says, He has no need, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Indicating that the, the temple was still in, functioning and the Jewish system of worship was in place. <clears throat> Another reason we believe that it was written in the first century is that Paul, or that Timothy rather, is mentioned. Another question we might ask is, who were the recipients? To whom was the writer writing? Well, from the text, it's obvious that the recipients were Jewish Christians, as well as probably some Gentiles who have been drawn to Judaism, who knew what it was to endure persecution. Undoubtedly, these were believers who were enduring persecution for their faith. A lot of people can identify with that today, the world over suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. I marvel when I read publications like Voice for the, uh, the Martyrs or I hear a report on Christian radio about what's going on in uh, many places in the world and the suffering that God's people are enduring and willing to face death rather than recant their faith in Jesus Christ. He was writing, I believe, to people much like this. In Hebrews 13:3 says, "Remember those who are in prison, remember those who are in prison as if you were fellow prisoners, and those who are, who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Remember them in that way. You know, that could be a challenge for us today to remember some of our uh, brothers and sisters around, around the world. Hebrews uh, 1323, you should know that our brother Timothy has also been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. So apparently Timothy had been imprisoned for his faith. Hebrews 10, 32 to 34 says, but I recall, uh, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you, were endure, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that your, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You have a better possession. Let them take what we have down here. We have a better possession and an abiding one. When I read that passage, I think of a co-worker I had back in the dark ages when I was in college. And uh, he was a man who had escaped Hungary when the communists took over in the, in the 1950s. And he told about his dad who owned a farm. And he voluntarily signed his farm over to the government uh, 
at gunpoint. And my co-worker told about he and his cousin deciding to escape the country. He talked about hiding in the fields and the woods by day and walking by night until they got out of the country. A lot of people have suffered for their faith. His father was given then a job as a foreman in a factory. But because he wouldn't quit going to church, he was demoted to the lowest position in that factory. But he would not give up his worship of Jesus Christ. Well, let's think about the purpose of the letter. The purpose of the letter was to encourage, even to exhort those believers not uh, those believers not to turn back to Judaism, since the uh, in spite of the hardships that we're suffering, the writer wanted to encourage these people to stand firm, in spite of the cost, be faithful to Christ, and then to exhort them not to get discouraged and drift away, as some apparently were were doing. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25, says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good, de- good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Notice that? All the more, uh, but, but uh, excuse me, be encouraging one another, encouraging. What an exhortation, and what an opportunity, and what a ministry, the ministry of encouraging is. You may not be a Sunday school teacher, you may not be a preacher, you may not be an elder, but if you know Jesus Christ, you can be an encourager encouraging others in their walk with the Lord, encouraging others in those times of of discouragement. Be with them. More than once, the Apostle Paul also in his writings encouraged the people to to encourage one another, especially as we see the day drawing near. What was the writer's method of exhortation and encouragement? It was by emphasizing the superiority of Jesus Christ over anything that Judaism had to offer. By emphasizing the superiority of Jesus Christ over anything that Judaism had to offer. In the writings, he tells us that Christ is greater than the angels. The Jewish people put a lot of emphasis on angels. He's greater than Moses. And of course, they revered Moses. Greater than the prophets. They revered their prophets. Greater than the sacrifices. And greater than the priests. Greater than the priests. Hebrews 10, 11 and 12 says, And every priest, that's the earthly priest that they were accustomed to, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which never take away sins. Notice that. Offering the same sacrifices which never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, 
He sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down at the right hand of God. That would say something to these Jewish brethren. Because that, that sitting at the right hand meant authority. It meant power. It meant that our Lord Jesus has authority in heaven. We need to remember that Christ is far superior to anything the world has to offer too. That's a challenge to us. That Jesus Christ is superior to anything that the world could ever offer. The invitation we're going to be looking at is based on the superiority of Christ to the Jewish high priests. Here we have a standing invitation. I'd like to read the text again. Uh, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Notice that. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And sometimes tempting takes the place of testing. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So we were driving up here, and I was having trouble talking. (laughs) All of a sudden, the Lord reminded me what I was preaching on this morning. And uh, the Holy Spirit seemed to say, well, practice what you preach. And uh, so I I did. I came boldly with confidence (laughs) to the throne of grace. Well, let's look at the, the writer's reasoning in verse 14. We have a great, emphasize great, high priest. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That's one of those verses it's it's wise to spend some time on, to meditate upon. See, Judaism may have had its high priests, but we have a great high priest in the person of the crucified and risen and ascended Christ, one who is far superior to the Jewish high priest. The Jewish high priest served temporarily, but our great high priest serves eternally. Hebrews 7, 23 to 25 says, The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Oh, what a promise. What a statement. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Theirs was an ever-changing priesthood. Ours is a never-changing priesthood. 
We have a priest after the order of Melchizedek. We read in chapter 5 and in verses 9 and 10. And being made perfect, he, or Christ, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, who is Melchizedek? Roman, or chapter 7, and verses 1 through 3. Here the writer says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything of everything. He is first by tra- he is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then he is also King of Salem, that is King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Speaking of Melchizedek, they were, these Jewish people would have been familiar with him, with his name and his ministry. And he said, we have a great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We have a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He, and uh, the earthly priest, high priest, entered the earthly holy of holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. Remember that. The high priest entered the earthly holy of holies once a year on the Day of Atonement through the intricately woven curtain that was 60 feet wide and 30 feet high that separated the holy place from the holy of holies and was torn from top to bottom when Christ was crucified. That was the veil that separated the holy of holies, the presence of God, from the normal normal people, ordinary people, everybody but the priests. And he only on once a year on the Day of Atonement. But I think we're all familiar with what happened when Jesus was crucified. That temper, that curtain was rent from top to bottom. And the way to God was open, became open to all believers. We talk about the priesthood of all believers. That means that we, every, every believer is considered a priest. And every believer has access to God, not once a year, but as often as necessary. The curtain was never restored. The way was opened for you and for me into the very presence of God. Hebrews 2.5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I suppose we could spend a lot of time on that. You yourselves are living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. That's us, believers. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
No more bringing of sheep and goats. No more poor people having to bring their pigeon or their dove. But we have access to the throne of God where we offer spiritual sacrifices. How would you define a spiritual sacrifice? I've thought about that. I think basically it's the life we live, the devotion we have to our Savior, the time we spend with Him, the times we meditate on His Word. Listen to what Luke said in Acts 1.9 after, after Jesus' resurrection ministry. It says, And when He had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up, and a cloud took Him out of their sight. He was lifted up to glory to take His seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 1.3, speaking of our high priest, great high priest, says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And again, that was a position of authority. In the Great Commission, we're told, all authority, Jesus, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. All authority. Well, this analogy could have a, and especially, it would be especially meaningful to the Jewish believers after the destruction of the temple in AD 70, when there was no longer any earthly holy of holies. Now what would do we do, the, the Jews would say? We have no temple. We have no holy of holies. We have no place for our priests to go once a year on our behalf. <laughs> no, but those who knew Christ had an entirely different view. Our great high priest is seated there at the right hand of God to make intercession for us. Notice he, the writer tells us that we have an understanding and a sympathetic great high priest. Verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. I had a pastor when I was in seminary. And he told one time about, he did a lot of counseling. He told one time about this lady who came to him, and he said, uh, oh, how can I help you? And she said, I, oh, I don't think you can. Well, why not? Well, because what I'm dealing with, I'm sure nobody else has ever dealt with. You've never heard of it. And he said when she began to talk, he nearly laughed because he'd heard the same thing so many times. But uh, we have a high priest that's never caught off guard. He knows us. He knows us inside out. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what we're dealing with. And He can sympathize with us. The Word says that we come for mercy. We have a sympathetic high priest. In His incarnation, He took upon Himself the likeness of sinful flesh. He was like us in every way. 
except sin. And, and he suffered temptation and rejection such as we will never suffer. Never forget that in his flesh he was tempted and tried as we'll never be. As I mentioned earlier, the word tempted can also refer to, to, to uh, testing. In order to, it can be, he can refer to temptation in order to tear us down or testing to, to build us up. Jesus was face to face with Satan, the great tempter. Satan, uh, the great tempter, he, for 40 days and 40 nights, he'd been toe to toe with him, yet he did not succumb to sin. We could go back and read Matthew 4, 1 through 11 for that. We won't do that today. Well, this is not to say that Jesus experienced every specific trial that you or I will ever face. It means that he was tempted and tried in the three areas of sin, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, every area. And he understands what we face what you face. This shows us the importance of saturating ourselves with the Word of God. Remember, every time Satan threw a temptation at Jesus, his response was, it is written. It is written. And you and I can stand on those same words. It is written. But as I said, that shows us the importance of saturating ourselves with the Word of God. Well, then, notice the contrast the writer draws between Christ, our great high priest, and the Jewish high priest. Hebrews 5, 1 through 3 says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because he is obligated to, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. In other words, every priest was a sinner, needing to offer sacrifices on for his own sin. But our great high priest is the sinless Son of God, who gave Himself on our behalf. Well, what's the logical response to the invitation? In, the, in this passage. Verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence, not in fear and trembling, but let us in, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And I like that phrase, let us draw near with confidence. Realizing Jesus is there. Jesus understands. He knows what you're facing. He knows what you're experiencing. He knows your need. So come with confidence. May not always get the answer you're looking for. May not always get the response, the answer you want, but you'll get the best answer. Remember the Apostle Paul when he was signed the ministry of being the apostle to the Gentiles? 
He had some thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. You're familiar with that. Many think it was his poor eyesight. And he prayed three times that God would take that problem away. Paul's idea was he couldn't do what he was being assigned to do as long as he had the thorn in the flesh. God didn't answer the way Paul wanted him to. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. It says, let us draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. In their day, it was illegal to go before the king without being called to do so. We could think of Queen Esther when, she, when, her, when the Jews were being threatened. And Mordecai encouraged her to go before the king and plead for her people. And, and she knew that going before the king, even as, as the queen, she couldn't do so without being invited for fear of death. But then we hear her say those words, if I perish, I perish. You know, we're invited to draw near the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What a difference. What a change. And to do so with confidence. When we come to the throne of grace, remember who we're approaching. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. Well, since we have such a great high priest, the Son of God himself, who understands our weaknesses, who underwent and withstood temptation, who gave himself as a sacrifice for our sin, who is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly holy of holies, let's accept that invitation to approach him with confidence, with our needs and concerns. He is our understanding intercessor. He's our advocate before the Father. Since we have such a one to intercede for us, never go back where you came from. In times of discouragement, don't turn back. The former priests were many in number, Hebrews 7, 23 to 25 says, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds, the priesthood, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He'll always be there. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. We hear of believers who become discouraged when things don't go as the way they'd expected or as they'd hoped. They wonder if this thing of following Christ is all it's cracked up to be. They're tempted to turn back. I think of a young lady who came to our church when I was pastoring in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. She came as a new believer to be baptized, and she was so excited about her newfound faith, her walk with the Lord. She gave a glowing testimony from the baptistry. And the next week, she published her testimony as a letter to the editor in the local newspaper. And I thought, oh, what a gift this lady is. But a few months later, things began to go bad, began to face problems, trials. And we never saw her again. She gave up. The writer of the Hebrews says, don't do it. 
Hang in there. Trust your Lord, your Savior, your high priest. You know, if you're being tempted to turn back, the answer isn't in going back. The answer is in drawing near to the one who understands. It means drawing near to the one who's seated at the right hand of God. Drawing near to the one who's eager to plead your case. As we come to the close this morning, let me say again, maybe someone here is being is going through a discouraging time, a time of grief, a time of temptation, a trial of some kind. You're wondering if following Christ is really worth it, if it's all you're cracked up to be. Maybe you're wondering why God isn't responding the way you expect Him to isn't giving you exactly what you want. Maybe you don't understand what God's doing in your life. Is He really keeping His promise? Maybe what He's allowing you to go through or experience just doesn't seem to make sense. A few years ago, I was watching a worship service from a church in Toronto, Ontario. I don't remember the pastor's name. But he told a story that day I'll never forget. He talked about a young man, high school age, who had been born with no left arm. And uh, he was a husky young fellow, and he wanted to be a wrestler. Nobody thought he could wrestle with no left arm. But their coach took him under his wing, taught him a wrestling hold. He started wrestling, he started winning. But before every match, he'd say, Coach, I'm worried. I only know one hold, and I don't even have a left arm. And he kept winning. And every time, and the coach would say, Trust me. Before every match, he was, Coach, I'm worried. I only know one hold, and I don't even have a left arm. And the coach would say, Trust me. And he kept winning. Every, every match, the same thing. He, he got into be a, what we call a state tournament. And he kept winning. And he was up against the reigning champion. And he said to his coach, Coach, I'm scared. I only know one hold. And I don't even have a left arm. Coach said, trust me. He won. After it was over, he said to his coach, Coach, I don't understand it. I only know one hold. I don't even have a left arm, and here I am, the champion. And the coach said, yes, son, I only taught you one hold. But when you get your opponent in that hold, his only escape is to grab you by your left arm. <laughs> and the, story, the emphasis is, the point of the story is, trust God even when you don't know what He's doing. Even when you don't understand, trust Him. He knows what He's doing. He does. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank You that we have a great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was crucified for us, who rose again, and is seated today at Your right hand to make intercession for us. And Father, we thank You that we have a God who knows what He's doing a God whom we can trust. So let us 
commit ourselves to come with confidence to the throne of grace, to receive mercy, to find grace to help in our time of need. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.